Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. I am proud to have Tony Gaskins Jr. on the show. His latest book, Make It Work, 22 Time-Tested Real-Life Lessons for Sustaining a Healthy, Happy Relationship. He's a husband of 12 years, father of two boys, author of several books, a celebrity coach, and intercontinental speaker. And we're going to talk about his interesting journey with love. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So you've got a lot of books. I mean, from The Dream Chaser, Single is Not a Curse, you know, What Daddy Told His Little Girl, all great titles, um, including one called Mrs. Wright, A Guide for Women on Being a Wife. So this is really in your wheelhouse, and I'd love you to start out by telling us how this subject came into being for you to jump on as an author, why you were so compelled to speak and write about this. Well, since a young age, you know, just like a lot of young men, I was just kind of enamored by the idea of a woman. And I was, you know, chasing the young ladies on the on the playground. And as I grew up, I still at the age of 16, I started looking for a wife and I was raised by my mother and father and I saw their marriage and they had their issues in the beginning. But I wanted that stability. I wanted that union. And so outside of sports, it was the ladies. And so I just was so I became a student of love and just understanding how humans interact. You know, what makes us tick? Why do we like one another and how can we make a relationship work? And I was in the 10th grade um, relationship coaching doing three-way calls. <laughs> that's you know? awesome. I mean, come on. That's like the youngest relationship coach alive. <laughs> right. And I just, I was doing three-way calls with ladies and they would, young girls, and they would be asking me about their boyfriend and what they should do. And I would give them some advice and they would go and implement it and then come back and say, Tony, I did what you said, do, and it worked out. And so it, I didn't even know what I was doing. I just was so just captivated by love and relationships. And so when I started looking to change my life after making every mistake in the book, um, it was a relationship book that was pitched to me by a female friend. She said, Tony, you know, you're the biggest player that I've known. You should write a book. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, at that age, I, I just loved to write. I was a poet. Um, And so I said, get me 10 questions from college females and I'll answer them from the perspective of a college male. And that is what turned into my first book when I was 22 years old, What Daddy Never Told His Little Girl. And it was a female friend who entitled the book because she said when she read it, it made her realize that her father had never told her any of that stuff. And she considered herself a daddy's girl. Mm, Really good stuff. Um, 
I bet too, it really resonated with, again, you know, if you can't, if you weren't parented the way you thought maybe you should be, there's people like you who can do it for you and help you. That's what that book sounds a lot like. I want to get into, your book's really chock full of so many practical, so much practical advice, but also a lot of really great, deep questions to ask oneself. And I love the way you've laid it out. It's very clear. And you, you go through a lot of topics that are... You know, for something like there's a couple things you mentioned where we're like, all right, ladies, don't kill me, hear me out. So, you know, there's a couple things that may sound a little controversial at first, but I wanted to go through some of the some of the topics in your book um, and hear what you have to say about it. One of the things you said was many women today are nurturing grown boys, right? Women today are taking men and making them sons instead of husbands. Can you clarify and tell our audience what that means to you? What I mean by that is, you know, a lot of I notice in a lot of relationships. You have an adult male who isn't making progress. He's not trying to become a better man. He's not trying to, you know, work on himself, his mind, body and spirit. And so he's almost like a teenage boy or a little boy. And the woman, she is picking up after him, literally like his dirty underwear is out of the floor, his his plate off the table and cooking for him, making love to his body and trying to to his mind. And yet he's giving her, you know, his butt to kiss like, hey, this is me. I'm a man. This is what men do. You know, that other woman texts my phone. Hey, I'm sorry. You know, what are you going to do? You're going to deal with it. We're going to get over this or, you know, you're going to pitch a fit every day. Uh, The woman I'm talking to in the Facebook inbox um, my ex-girlfriend keeps popping up, you know, things like this is happening in so many relationships. And I just notice a lot of women settling for what I call grown boy behavior, not realizing that if a woman says, look, I'm not putting up with this. I'm not settling for you coming in late for you, giving me your word and not keeping your word for you yelling at me, for you cursing at me, you know, disrespecting me, calling me out of my name every time you get mad. All of these things, I I will walk away. Like you can see my back walking out the door. A man will grow and change. And I think just the fear, so many women fear having to start over, fear having to be a single mother, fear having to lose the income or half of the income. And it just creates this sense of, you know, complacency. You know, that's, it is really interesting. There's a lot of people that, um, and I, you know, in the marriage conversation later that I want to have with you, there's an interesting nuance there, um, that I've noticed in my experience with women settling for someone who doesn't want marriage and they talk themselves into it. And we'll get to that in a minute, but let's backtrack to the men here. So you mentioned as men, you know, you guys tend to ignore the positive examples of manhood and gravitate towards the negative. Why is that? And what do you mean by that? Well, it kind of, goes with that saying that you hear nice guys finish last. And so I actually just saw, a, I heard a prominent speaker say it the other day, nice guys finish last. And they were kind of talking to me, you know, because I do seminars and I charge 35 to $55. But the information I'm teaching is literally changing people's lives, is saving their lives. Whereas other speakers may charge $150 to $10,000 to give 
less information or less life-changing information. And so they make millions of dollars in one day, whereas mine may earn me 10,000 to 30,000, you know, at an event. And basically they're saying, look, you're trying to be this nice Christian guy and you don't want to charge these high prices because you consider yourself being nice and you're losing. So when I pull up beside you in my Rolls Royce, don't be mad because I had the audacity to charge $5,000 for a ticket to my seminar. Ha ha. Hmm. And so men see that. And so men start to see nice guys finish last. It's the drug dealers. It's the, the guys who are tricking Wall Street, the guys who are, you know, insurance people, but they're, you know, fixing the numbers, the CPAs is these are the people that we see growing up wherever you come from making all the money. And then you look at your dad, maybe, or your uncle, maybe, and he's going to this job working in the hot sun, paving roads, making $10 an hour and could barely have the ends meet. And so that is where that comes from. Men start to gravitate towards the hustlers, you know, the, the go getters, even if they're doing it illegally or without integrity. That's interesting. Um, so it's basically like what we're seeing is possible, you know, in front of us. Let's talk about men stepping up a bit and what men can do. I want to talk about, you know, women as well. But what are some of the things if you don't have a good mentor as a man? Where do you go? Where do you start? You have to realize that it's always just at, at the tip of your finger. Like I didn't have what I needed, but I got on Google. I got on YouTube and I found Zig Ziglar and I started listening to his podcast. You know, he had a podcast when he was living and it was like hundreds of his talks and I was at that time listening to rap music. Whenever I had free time, I would have this music playing in my headphones, in the car. I replaced that music with Zig Ziglar. And he talked about life, love and business. He talked about being a husband. He talked about being a father. He talked about being a businessman, a salesman, everything, you know, integrity, character. And so all of the lessons that I didn't get growing up, you know, I had left the street life selling drugs and I had been in and out of that life for five years when I found out who Zig Ziglar was. And I replaced the rap music that was a blueprint for me in the street life. And I replaced it with Zig Ziglar. And that became a blueprint for me in the self-development world. And so it really made me a new man. And all I had to do was just type in a few words on on Google and YouTube and I was able to find help. And it went from him to Jim Rohn to Brian Tracy to Les Brown to Tony Robbins a little bit. Um, all different people I just was bumping into and getting lessons from different walks of life. Yeah. And with each one of those speakers, they usually mention another speaker or other work that inspired them. And then boom, you got another, you know, to-do list, you know, a uh, book to read, or, or again, like you said, so much free information out there to start the train on getting to the right place. Um, I love what you say when you say, when you love yourself the way you wish someone else loved you, 
You hold the key to life. I absolutely believe this inner confidence, self-love and self-esteem is so important. What are some of the ways we can um, ask ourselves or question whether we are a person who's doing that, um, you know, or not loving ourselves the way we should? Um, How do we get there? What are some things to look out for in terms of that notion? Well, what I ask myself is, you know, what does, how do you break your life down? So if you break it down in, into sections like mind, body, and spirit, then you have to ask yourself, am I doing the work in those areas? Am I feeding those areas? How am I feeding my mind? So I'm on the podcast, you know, learning and growing. I'm listening to podcasts. I'm reading books. How am I taking care of my body? You know, am I eating right? Am I sleeping right? What am I drinking? You know, what goes inside of my mouth? Is it too much alcohol? Is it too much sugar? Um, And then my spirit, you know, am I centered? Do I have any faith or any belief system? Do I meditate, do yoga, whatever it may be? And so when you look at yourself and you ask yourself, how am I treating myself? How am I loving myself? That's where self-love starts. And when you create a system, when you create a plan for every aspect of life, like this morning, I was in the gym and I just said, I told my wife, babe, I want to go harder than I've been going. I've been selling myself short. So she gave me a different workout and she was right beside me on her treadmill. I was on mine and I went harder and I pushed my body further. And then I went from there to started reading and listening to podcasts again. And next thing you know, I'm checking off the list of the areas I need to address every single day. And I think that's what we have to do. Yeah. The daily practice of is it what gets you into the micro moments of life that you can track versus do it once every couple months. And then you've got an onslaught of stuff you need to maybe clean up and then you can catch things as they go. I love that bit of advice. I want to talk to you about an interesting concept. I'm really glad you brought this up in your book. Um, You talk about the concept of open relationships and sort of some of the, and, and I really agree with you on what you said about this. It's very interesting. So let's talk about what you noticed after coaching several people who had gotten themselves into open relationships and seemingly voluntarily so were part of it. But please break down what you discovered. What I found in open relationships is that the human heart just isn't conditioned, especially for a lot of women is not conditioned to share a man happily. Um, And it's really not conditioned for a man to share a woman, you know, happily. But what happens is, in most cases, it is proposed by the man, or if it comes from the woman, it is to please the man, thinking that if I do this, then he won't have to go outside of the relationship because I'm bringing the woman in or I'm allowing the woman in. And then before you know it, there's a breakdown because the lust cannot be quenched like thirst. So the man starts to deal with this other woman more and starts to fall for her. And then now he starts to say, well, look, it's more chemistry with you. Let me replace my wife. And then you and I go find another woman and then it just becomes a cycle. And then that woman gets replaced. And then the next 
And or on the flip side, it may be the woman starts to deal with the other woman more and they fall for one another. There was a prominent couple. Um, my wife followed them online. It was a billionaire guy with this woman and they had an open relationship. And then the next thing you know, the two women left the man and they are a monogamous couple now. And it just goes to show that the heart really wants companionship and loyalty and that when you take lust out of bounds, it can take over you. Yeah. And let's talk about, you know, you had some interesting observations about perhaps the past experience of women brought to agree to a situation like this, if that was a scenario. And then on the other side, what men might have experienced in their life that would bring them to this open relationship concept? Because I thought those were very interesting and telling. Well, the past experiences with women, you know, it stems from and it could be a couple different things. And sometimes it's being cheated on. Uh, sometimes it is being molested or being raped, um, being left for another woman. So in the book, I go into a couple of them, but it can come from several areas to where a woman's past pain leads her to a place to where if she was violated at a young age or if she was or, or her father wasn't in her life, then she comes to this relationship and she says, you know what? I have to give this man whatever he wants, because if not, it'll be taken or he'll abandon me just like my ex-boyfriend or like my father did. And so women find themselves in these situations because they started to deal with another man before they decided to heal. And so you have to heal before you deal. And then with men, a lot of times what it is is Men did not see a positive example in the home. They did not see a father loving their mother. And so they don't even believe that a man can be with one woman or they saw every guy they know, uncles, brothers, cousins cheating. And and then sometimes on the other side is a man who was overlooked and ignored by women. And then as an adult, he comes into some money, but yet he still resents women. And so now he wants to treat the women like pawns on a chessboard. And it's almost like a, a revenge of the overlooked guy or revenge of the hurt man and the broken man. And so now instead of che- treating a woman, you know, like a prize, like like his wife, like his rib, he treats her, you know, like she's nothing. And he just juggles her and, and uses her because he sees her more like a piece of meat than like a person with a heart with feelings. It's excellent. I also, um, you know, I'm wondering what you think of this. One of the things I've noticed with women over the years in these kind of conversations is you'll have a woman who's always wanted to get married. And I would love to talk about this, but uh, a woman who's always wanted to get married, you know, but that then they'll get into a relationship with a guy who's not interested in marriage or has voiced some kind of like, I don't know, what does a piece of paper mean? Whatever, all those things that a guy would express. I'm not saying women don't. I'm just giving you this, you know, men-women scenario. And then what I see, and this breaks my soul, is that that woman who I've known, who has always wanted to get married and really wants that, she's in this relationship with this guy, and then she settles for his point of view. And then you start to hear her be like, well, I mean, I'm not really sure I could be. And you're like, wait a minute, you wanted that. 
So now you're changing it just because the guy you're with right now, it's settling, you know? And I just want to share with the audience, you are allowed to want whatever you want and you're going to get whatever you want if you believe you can have it. And I, I really want people to take note of this. What are your thoughts on that? I'm sure you've seen that too. Yes, a lot. And I talk about that in my chapter. It's called Marriage is Necessary. Yeah, I love this. I love getting into this. This is a really interesting uh, conversation about the statistics and how you look at them. And so what, where I go in that chapter is I'm, I'm expressing that marriage is necessary because we live in a society that values a piece of paper. So when men say, oh, it's just a piece of paper, then... Why do we sign contracts when we get a new job or we do a business deal or we agree to any type of deal? Because paper matters in our world. So in marriage, that paper that you sign is vows. You're signing on to those vows, to this agreement to be together until death does you part. And if you decide to break that agreement, now there are repercussions. So what happens is a lot of men trick women out of marriage because the man knows his heart is not invested in the relationship or in this woman. And he knows exactly when he's going to leave. He says, I will loan her five years of my life or 10 years of my life. Or some men will even give 20 or 25 years of their life because they were cheating every year, the entire 20 or 25. And then they will leave and there's no repercussions because the children are past, you know, the age of child support or even if he has to pay child support, he doesn't have to give her 50 percent because he never married her without a prenup or without or with a prenup that takes care of her if he decides to up and leave. And so a man only talks a woman out of marriage when he is afraid to commit to her until death does us part because he knows his lust has an expiration date. And people say, well, why get married when 50% of them fail? Well, when you think about it, if 50% fail, that means 50% are succeeding. And to go 50% from the field on, in a basketball game, you're doing amazing. You know, to to win 50 percent of any games, you're doing amazing. And then at the same time, we don't have numbers for how many relationships who decided not to get married fail. Ninety percent of those fail. Probably ninety five percent of those fail. I mean, how many times can we see a couple who decided not to get married? just because they reduced it to it being a piece of paper and they were together happily until death did them part. I, I've only seen one couple in my entire life and the man died before 60. Right. And the only couple out there in the ether, celebrity couple that we could think about would be like Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell. Um, but and again, Oprah very rare and, and far, yeah, Oprah, very far, far and few between though. Um, I really like your point about that. And also in speaking with Ariel Ford, you know, she mentioned that HeartMath did some studies and marriage people actually live longer, live longer, healthier lives. Um, I want to talk about, <laughs> I love the, um, well, let's talk about this, this concept. I really like, you have a chapter titled, Believe What They Consistently Show You. 
And this goes to a saying I use a lot, which is people who have a false sense of hope for consistency, right? You know, they're, they're, let's say they're, they're, husband, their boss, whatever, it's treating them like crap. Then there's a good week in there. Oh my God, well, he's been really great this week. Ah, Then it fails down and then they're miserable again. And it's like, you're hoping for a sense of consistency you're not getting. What people are showing you is who they are. Let's talk about that when it comes to to relationships. You know, I believe that's so important that we evaluate the patterns. And just like you said, a lot of times people go into a situation, whether it's at work or in a relationship, and it's 90% bad. But then that 10% good, they let that outweigh the 90% of bad. And so when I say believe what they consistently show you is you shouldn't have to go through being cheated on more than once. One time is too many times. So if you catch someone cheating on you one time and you decide to make it work, you should never have to go through that again. If they cheat on you a second time and a third time and a fourth time, even if it's emotional cheating in the inbox of Facebook or Instagram, they are consistently showing you that they don't want to be faithful to you and they don't love you and they don't respect you. And that is when you need to recognize that pattern and remove yourself from that situation. And so patterns don't lie. Sometimes actions can lie. Sometimes words can lie, but patterns don't lie. That's right. And we all know what those are because you can just tap right into your feelings. Doesn't feel right. It's not right. Um, Let's talk about cheating and faithfulness on that note. Um, You have some really strong thoughts about being faithful. Right. I believe being faithful is the key. It is. it, It unlocks everything in life because when you can be faithful you are suppressing that you know childlike lust that causes you to want to hop from person to person or thing to thing like we want to change cars or we want to change hairdos um, we like change we like variety but when you can learn to be faithful to a person in mind body and spirit you're not manipulating them you're not deceiving them you're not using them You unlock self-control. And when you master self, there's nothing in life that you can't conquer. There's nothing in life that you can't master. So just like you stated, studies show that people who are happily married, that means faithful, you earn 20 to 30 percent more money and you live longer. And so there are benefits to it by me deciding to be 100 percent faithful in a relationship, the relationship I'm in with my wife. It literally changed my life in every aspect. My finances, when I married my wife, you know, I was making twenty thousand dollars a year on a job that I probably could have maxed out at 40 to 50 thousand dollars a year. When I decided that I was going them first two years, I was emotional cheating. I was looking around, you know, I was having conversations at work. My spirit was getting ready to physically cheat and to have a complete affair. At 25 years old, I made a decision that I would be 100 percent faithful. And outside of the focus I gave my wife, I would give it to my business, to my purpose. And I went from working for someone else, making a little bit of money 
to owning 11 companies and building over 50 streams of income through online courses and books and services that I provide. And what I went, what I made in a year, I started making in a day. And it literally was because of faithfulness and focus. And then I received favor. And I call it the three F's, faithfulness, focus, and favor. I love that. And I would venture to say that one of the reasons faithfulness worked out for you in your business and ultimately your marriage, but your business as well, is that you're out of integrity. And no matter how you can get away with it or justify an affair or being out of integrity in some kind of way, it's it's in there. It's poking at your subconscious. It's going to jack you up somewhere else. When you feel good about yourself and your integrity, you're more confident. That's going to shine through, right? I can absolutely see how that move being such a strong integrity move, right? Especially with one's wife, how the favor is just extraordinary. Right. 100%. You said it. Love is a moral act. And so when you can operate in pure love and faithfulness, you are building that morality, though that integrity, and that translates to every area of your life. One of the things I love that you talk about, it's been a longstanding philosophy in my family, um, as far as what sort of would preach to us about relationships, which is <laughs> your chapter titled, Mind Your Own Business. Uh, that's been a longstanding thing in my family. It's always been, hey, it's you and your wife, then the kids, and you don't bring your crap to the public. You don't bring your crap outside. You deal with each other first. I think that's so important. It, we hear so much of the time, wives, husbands constantly bitching and moaning to other people about little things, right? Oh, God, if he would just do this, or oh, he did this again, or she's, you know, and let's talk about how that can really destruct a marriage and in general, one's own soul. Right. It really ruins your relationship from the inside out because it builds resentment. And even if it doesn't build resentment within yourself, because you're dumping all of your complaints onto someone else, it builds resentment with your friends and family. So now when they come over to the house, they can't even have a genuine conversation with your spouse because they secretly hate your spouse because you've made them hate your spouse. And so it tears you apart. So anytime you go to them now for some sound advice, everything is biased. And so they start to pull you away from your spouse because you have painted this ugly picture when you may be the problem or you may be a large part of the problem. So I say treat your relationship like a house. And with that, you need to lock your doors to keep people out of your business. You need to mow your grass so you can see the snakes, the fake friends. And you need to pay your dues, meaning do the work, loving one another. But at the same time, you need fire alarms so that you don't get trapped in a in a house that is burning to the ground. So that if your relationship comes to a place that you need your friends and family to intervene, you are aware of that and you can go to them then for the real issues like abuse. Um, cheating, like the real things where you may need a couch to sleep on or someone to help you with first and last month's rent for your new place or lawyer fees for a divorce. That is what your fire alarms are for. Not for, oh, he didn't pick up his underwear for the last seven days and I just hate that he snores so much and he chews with his mouth open and, you know, he's just rude. 
and you're calling him being rude is him being honest or him just communicating or vice versa. Man, you know, complaining about his wife. Oh, she doesn't cook. But you're not mentioning that she's running after all of the kids all day long and she's doing all of that. And you keep her up to one o'clock in the morning and then she has to wake up at 5 a.m. So she's running off four hours of sleep. But then you tell everybody she doesn't cook, she doesn't clean and she won't have sex with you. But she's only slept four hours you know, in the last two or three days. Yeah. You know, also too, what we focus on, you get more of. And so if you're constantly pointing out, you know, it's just some point at turn in relationships, this is a common pitfall is to start to focus on what's wrong with the person, right? Uh, the toothpaste cap, the this, and then it grows, right? Uh, the way they chew that sound is annoying or whatever. I mean, you can go on and on, but essentially people at some point stop to focus on the positives, Right why why the hell do we do that what what turn does that take in your impression of relationships um it's when a little problem pops up and then all of a sudden we're exaggerating all of the little things i mean because going down that road is just going to breed more of that contentiousness mhm right and i believe we do it just because we just self righteousness we want to be the the winner it's a power struggle we we want to be seen as the perfect one and we want a reason to be upset because truthfully, we're operating from fear because we fear that if we give everything and we allow ourselves to fall in love with this person's flaws, that now we're so vulnerable and we're so open that one day we're going to get left or we're going to get cheated on or we're going to get hurt. And so we subconsciously keep our guards up. And in order to keep your guards up, you got to find something to complain about. And we do that and we sabotage the relationship and the pure love. So when you stop operating from fear and you start operating from love, now you're able to fall in love with everything about your spouse and really cultivate real love. That's amazing. So I want to read a little passage from your book. And this is where people in the audience might be like, hey, whoa, what's going on? And you even mentioned your book. You're like, hold your horses. Um, So you say, you talk about submission. And you say the proper interpretation of submission should be to follow the lead of your husband if he is following the lead of God. It should not mean that you're a sex slave. It doesn't mean you're a child to your husband and he can treat you as such. It doesn't mean you have no voice, feelings, thoughts, opinions. And it doesn't mean you have to compromise your moral values. And it doesn't mean you're less than him. But let's talk about what you mean by submission and and this conversation that you have in your book. In this conversation, basically what I'm saying is you should not be in submission to someone who doesn't have a mission. So you shouldn't be following a blind leader. But in our relationships, and I have other chapters about picking a captain and being teammates and submission and that submission takes strength. And in the chapter on submission, I mentioned that it's a two way street that you should be submitted to one another. But in most households, a woman will say, my husband is the head of the household. And that could be for the better or it could be for the worse. And what I mean by that is that if you are in submission to a man who has no mission, meaning he's getting drunk or he's getting high, he gambles too much, he 
you know, he just lacks morals and values and integrity. Now that's not submission. That is stupidity. And so what I'm talking about is making sure that you understand that, yes, it takes strength, but you should also have some stipulations for your submission. And it doesn't mean that the person submitting, because I submit to my wife in a lot of areas like schoolwork and what school the kids go to and, you know, all of those things. Um, I submit to her and I'm paying twenty five hundred dollars a month for my sons to go to school. And that's cash money. And it's hard for me to do that. But I trust her because she knows more about formal education than I do. And so I'm submitting to her because one of her sisters is in medical school, one is in law school. She got a full academic scholarship to college and got a master's in medical sciences. So I'm submitting to her in that because I know that's her area. And then she submits to me in areas where she knows that's my area. And so that is what that chapter is about, making sure that you understand it doesn't mean that this the leader in this area, whatever area it may be, is a tyrant or a dictator. Right. And, you know, oftentimes I think in our society, uh, again, a lot of people are submissing in the wrong ways. Um, People will allow their spouse on either side, male or female, to emasculate them or downgrade them in front of other people and they accept it. Um, there's there's so many ways to social through. No one wants to be around a bickering couple. We all hate that. And it looks bad for both of them, the person taking it and the person dishing it. Um, and I feel like uh, oftentimes um, I think it's really important to, especially if you're in a you know <clears throat> straight male-female relationship as well, you know, a lot of men in our society are trying to be men here. They're trying to, you know, and if they're if they're doing a great job, let them be men in the ways they need to. And again, like you, you have your roles and these can be conversations, right? Like I will deal with the kids in the school. You deal with the broken roof or whatever, whatever the scenario is. But I do love your conversation on that. And I think that that, that chapter is really fascinating. Um, in sort of finishing up, you know, you have, give us a couple of the tips to try to reignite and re-spark and keep that keep that relationship hot. Things have gone stale. You're like, ah, or you want to keep it going and you're newly married and you don't want things to fall into some classic pitfalls. You have some really good suggestions. Can you throw out a few of them for us? Well, in that chapter, keep it hot. Um, I mentioned that you should date every week. My wife and I, we try to make every Friday night a date night. And if it doesn't work, we find another date that you should keep touching. I read one time that Spanish couples touch each other 70 times a day. And American couples touch each other twice a day. You should keep touching. Um, You should focus on the sexy. You know, find what is sexy about your spouse or your partner and focus on that. Um, Be spontaneous, you know, just for nothing gifts or for nothing favors, just whatever it may be. And it kind of goes on and on. Send video text instead of written text and create a love schedule. So you have to continue to do the things you did to make them fall in love. You can't get complacent. And I say when you get complacent, you get replaced. And it doesn't mean necessarily by another person. You may get replaced by golf. You may get replaced by shopping or the gym. Don't get complacent. I love it. So we will, of course, put everything in the show notes in terms of how to connect you and people listening right now can go to TonyGaskins.com. 
tell us in what capacities do you, you, you do private coaching seminar? Tell us how we can benefit from more of your work. I mean, you can go to Amazon, you've got a lot of great books, just type in Tony Gaskins Jr. But tell us how can we benefit from more of your work other than this wonderful book? Um, I still do one on one coaching just finished a session right before this. And I also do seminars around the world. Um, seminars that are a couple hours with a Q&A and then some that are full day and some that are two nights, three days. And so just lock in TonyGaskins.com or follow me on Instagram and you'll be able to keep up. Tell us, you're 12 years into your marriage at this point? Yes. And, and I'm assuming life is beautiful. It is. It. I honestly say that I am 100% happy. And my wife, she feels to me that she is 100% happy. And I tell people all the time that a happy, healthy relationship doesn't have to be a fairy tale. And I could not have written this book in five or six days had it not been real. I didn't have to labor over it. I literally wrote it in one week at the beach house. And it flowed from my spirit because I'm living it and we've made it work and it will never end. And so that's I have to just be a person that stamps real love because it changed my life. That's so wonderful. Um, That's a great place to leave our audience. But is there anything else on the topic of relationships that you'd like to share with us or um, leave with our audience today? I would say continue to love yourself and set standards for your life and know that if you are unwilling to compromise your standards, the universe has to give you exactly what you desire. Thank you so much. Great wise words. Tony Gaskins Jr., his new book, Make It Work. Check it out on Amazon. And thank you so much for joining us today, Tony. Thank you for having me. Hi, Brad Kearns here with something different than a stiff commercial script message. I want to give you an authentic endorsement for one of my favorite supplements of all time. It's called Adaptogenic Calm. used to be called Primal Calm, and the key ingredient in this formula is called Phosphatidylserine, or PS. And this agent has been shown in hundreds of studies to blunt the catabolic effects of the stress hormone cortisol in the bloodstream that's released in response to all forms of life stress, whether it's a series of difficult workouts, extensive jet travel, personal stress of any kind. We're constantly triggering the fight-or-flight mode in modern life. And when people say, hey, you should take a chill pill, this really is a chill pill. Because when you consume an appropriate amount of phosphatidylserine and the other supportive ingredients that have been known to have a calming effect on the central nervous system, things like magnesium, L-theanine, magnolia bark, and rhodiola, you will get a calming effect. It's not like a stimulant product that makes you feel more energy and have a better workout, but instead this sort of takes the edge off of that stress buzz where you feel that foggy brain function, maybe a little shaky and finally fried at the end of a busy stressful day. This stuff will help you clear your bloodstream from those catabolic stress hormones before they can do the damage. So I like to take significant quantities of it in and around stressful events such as jet travel or in those heavy training cycles when you're really pushing your body and trying so hard not to fall into that overtraining 
overstress, foggy brain function spiral downward. That's right, phosphatidylserine has also been shown to enhance cognitive function. It's commonly used in Europe on cognitive decline patients. And you can make that connection between when you're frazzled and overstressed and how your brain doesn't work quite as well. So this is a brain function enhancing, stress hormone reducing, secret weapon, adaptogenic calm. Look for it on primalblueprint.com.